always wanted to do that. Uh, well, hey, welcome to the local Presbyterian church in town, if you would. Uh, <laughs> that was supposed to be a joke. Uh, if you would, grab your Bibles, open up to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're finishing up our series on 1 Peter. And uh, I don't know if you have the same problem I do, but when I finish a book, I really struggle to read the last chapter because I don't want the book to be over. So uh, in a similar way, we're going we're gonna to close the book on 1 Peter today. Next week, we're picking up on a great new scary series. I'm not going to tell you about it right now, but I would encourage you to check our Wednesday night Bible study at 630 to prepare yourself for it. Uh, it's going to be very exciting. It's going to take us through the rest of the year. Uh, but this morning, we're really just uh, looking up uh, one last time at 1 Peter chapter 5. So let's finish up 1 Peter and hear the last things that the Apostle Peter has to tell us. A Christian, hear God's word to us in 1 Peter chapter 5 through the end of the letter. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour him. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will endure forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Be seated. Keep that Bible open in front of you, and let's pray. Holy Spirit, we know that you are here present among us because two or more are gathered. We have come to the wells of salvation to drink deeply. We have come to your word to feast on your wisdom and your knowledge. Father, we pray that you would reveal yourself and your character, that you would give us a new taste for the gospel of grace, and that your grace would lead us to repentance and renewal of life. Father, we are hungry for restoration and renewal. Holy Spirit, would you give it to us now? And Father, we pray that we would truly know you as the God of all grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, well, as we finish up 1 Peter, uh, I wanted to finish on this theme because this is my favorite verse in all of 1 Peter, this idea in verse 10 of the God of all grace. Uh, no one else calls God that anywhere else in the Bible. Uh, this is a term, the God of all grace. That's a term that Peter himself uses to refer uh, to the God of Israel, uh, the God of the Bible. Uh, Paul will sometimes call God the God of all comfort. Uh, you know, we hear about a woman named Hagar in the Old Testament who calls him the God who sees. She means the God who, who sees even people like me. Now, here we see in 1 Peter, Peter wants us to focus on the fact that our God is the God of all grace. And grace here refers specifically to the unearned love and affection that we have available to us because of what Jesus Christ has done. You know, grace is this thing that we do not earn. It's the goodness of God that we didn't earn, 
Uh, to be specific, Jesus earned it for us on the cross, right? He took our punishment. He was raised to new life by the Holy Spirit, and now he offers us life with him by the power of his resurrection, right? And so the grace that we have is available, not because we've earned it, but because of what Jesus Christ has earned for us. And now we're united to him by faith. So we serve the God of all grace. Well, now, I guess what, I want to, what I'm getting at is to really sort of understand all of the things that First Peter is telling us, this letter. Uh, we have to come to grips with a very simple concept, although um, it can be sort of difficult for many people, uh, maybe even people who grew up in the church, uh, who grew up in a religious household. You know, it can feel like you're trying to cup water in your hands, you know, just sort of slips out just over time. And this idea of, uh, you know, what is it that Peter's really trying to get us to see, uh, I think is summarized in that idea of the God of all grace. And what I want you to focus on is when Peter calls God the God of all grace, he says that the God of all grace will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. And I think what Peter's getting at is for us to sort of, uh, you know, finish up First Peter, we've got to see that to ever really live as a sojourner or an exile, right, to, to live this Christian life like Peter is describing, uh, you and I, we have to have a personal encounter with the living God. It cannot be something you are relying on that you received from merely your upbringing or merely because you were raised in a religious home. I mean, Jesus is constantly telling people that they have to have a personal encounter not a vicarious encounter due to your parents, not a vicarious encounter due to something that happened to you, you know, through someone else, but a personal encounter, you with the living God. <laughs> That's what Jesus is driving at. I mean, he, he, he makes this point so many times. Uh, in John chapter 3, probably the most famous chapter in the entire Bible, you know, where we get John 3.16, Jesus talks with a man named Nicodemus, and Jesus says, aren't you the teacher of the people of Israel? Aren't, aren't you supposed to be like the best Bible teacher with the best radio show and the best YouTube channel about the Old Testament? And yet you don't understand that you must be born again? And what Jesus says is, he says, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you, Nicodemus, you, teacher of the law, must be made new from the inside out. Jesus is constantly telling people, right, it's, it is having a personal uh, recognition, experience with who the living God is in Jesus Christ. And no one else can have that for you. And what I want you to grasp is that's what changes Peter's life, right? Uh, Peter, Peter was humbled by his sin. He, he knew he was not the perfect guy. You know, when he sees Jesus' first miracle, you know, he famously says, Lord, depart from me for I'm a sinful man. Uh, but as Peter's life goes on, you'll know in Peter's life that he does some pretty bad things, things that he would have a hard time forgiving himself for, like when he abandons Jesus on the night that Jesus was betrayed, when he calls down curses from heaven, swearing he doesn't know who Jesus is, and he leaves Jesus. I mean, what, what, what back alley of shame does Peter slink to while Jesus is on the cross? And yet, and yet after the resurrection, Jesus, whom Peter has betrayed, despite all of his, you know, boasting that he would never do that. Jesus takes Peter on the shore side, and they go and they take a walk. And Jesus affirms his love for him and affirms that he still has a calling on Peter's life. And he says, feed my sheep, Peter. You're not disqualified. 
And no matter how much good that Peter had done in his life, no matter how many times he had done the right thing, Peter had always carried with him a mark of humility because of that. And he knew his relationship with Jesus was fundamentally, foundationally, and eternally centered not on his good deeds, not on his righteousness, but on the forgiveness and righteousness of the God of all grace who walked him on that beach and showed him that he is full of grace and truth. So uh, I guess I've been suggesting to you now for about three months, right, that the way that we're supposed to live in this culture where we don't quite fit in, right, uh, we know we're exiles and we're sojourners and, you know, there's going to be things in this world where we don't quite resonate with them and we may even be insulted and maligned by the broader culture. You know, in the midst of that, the way that we're supposed to live is knowing and living with Jesus Christ, right? It's listening to his voice more than anything else. And that becomes the motivation and the power to live out this strategy. And so as we finish up 1 Peter, go to 1 Peter chapter 1. I want to sort of just summarize this letter for you and see if you can kind of see uh, what we've been suggesting for four months now. Really what I've been suggesting to you for a long time is 1 Peter is not just pie in the sky, good advice that we are free to take or not take. Really what 1 Peter is, it is a strategy for Christians living in a culture where the culture does not accept God and does not want to hear about the gospel. How, do, how are Christians supposed to live in a culture where they don't fit in? 1 Peter is the strategy for how to do that. It's not just pie-in-the-sky spiritual talk, right? So what are, what are those strategic things? How do we live? Well, he begins in chapter 1, verse 1, in the very first sentences, he says you have to know what your identity is. If you're a Christian, we are elect exiles, right? And there's a dichotomy. There's a, there's a tension in that, right? On one hand, we're elect. We're chosen by God. We're beloved by God, right? So that's part of the Christian identity. We know God's love for us. But what's the other side of that? We're exiles, right? We don't fit in. We, we are mistreated. We're misrepresented, right? We are sojourners, right? And so there's the tension, there's our strategy. We are beloved by God, and yet we are also exiles. So how are we supposed to live? What's that tension look like? Well, in chapter 2, 12, he tells us that, okay, well, this is what it, is what it looks like. Keep your conduct honorable among unbelievers, right? So we don't uh, disregard authority. We don't, you know, give the finger to anybody. We're not disrespectful. We keep our conduct honorable, and he goes on in chapter 2, he says, even honor the emperor, right? And the emperor then was Emperor Nero, who was notoriously terrible, right? But we honor him. We honor those in authority over us. He continues in part of our strategy in chapter 3. Our strategy works its way out in our most intimate relationships between husbands and wives. The way that they love and support each other is meant to be Christ-focused. You know, in chapter 3, verse 8, he continues and he says, part of the strategy for Christians is we have unity of mind, we have sympathy towards one another, we have brotherly love, and we have tender-heartedness, and we have a humble mind. He even says we don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, we bless. Um, you know, I can save you about six hours this afternoon. Do you want me to save you six hours of your life because if you're like the average American, you'll probably watch six hours of cable news this afternoon. And let me just summarize what you're going to see on the news today. You know what it is? It is reviling for reviling, right? It is, it is hatred for hatred, right? It is a disregard. You know, we, it is hating others and being hated by them, 
right? And we will articulate uh, ad nauseum forever all of the reasons why the people on the other side are worthy of your hatred, right? I just, saved, I just summarized, you know, all of cable TV for the next week easily, right? So now we can busy ourselves with, you know, loving our neighbors and living and operating like Jesus, right? Well, I, I facetiously make that point, or I, I overmake the point, but uh, friends, this is why it's so important that we see First Peter not just as pie-in-the-sky advice on the same level as a, a TV news anchor or a commentator or a political pundit. This is not advice. These are not advice points from the Bible. That's not how Peter sees the commands of Jesus. These are commands. Jesus says to pray for your enemies and to love them. Peter says, we do not revile in return. Instead, we bless. And we can only do that. The way we do that is not because we have just sort of enlightened ourselves to that way of thinking, or we think that is going to help manipulate the world into what we want it. We live that way because that is the way that the gospel has shaped us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, it's when we realize that while we were reviling and being reviled, Jesus saved us despite ourselves, that we embrace a humility with the way that we treat people. Um, let me say it another way. The only way that that kind of life is truly possible where you bless your enemies and pray for them, it's only possible when you have a personal encounter with the living God, the God of all grace. Peter goes on, he says the strategy is also recognizing that evil is more complex than we will ever understand, uh, that there is a demonic realm that Jesus has been victorious over. That's verse 3, 19. And then in chapter 4, he, he tells Christians that our strategy is also every believer using their gifts to bless one another. If you can serve, you serve others. If you speak, you speak on behalf of others. And that is so different than how the world treats other people. You can look in verse 4, verse 3, and see how the world treats each other. There's this sense that we love and we use the gifts that God has given us to bless one another. And then in 4.12, he tells us that Christians should expect a fiery trial. They should expect suffering and hardship in this life. But for the Christian, it should not discourage us. Instead, our fiery trial in this life is like a refining fire that's going to melt away everything that isn't Jesus so that we come out more pure silver and gold because of the trials that we are enduring, right? What, e what people intend for evil, God intends for good. The struggles that you and I face, the persecutions that may come one day, God is going to use those to make us more like Jesus, right? What God or what man intends for evil, God intends for good. Uh, Peter gives more strategies, right? In chapter 5, he even gives a strategy for the leadership within the Christian community, right? Uh, Peter casts a vision for spiritual leaders who are not trying to emotionally or sexually or financially abuse their people, but instead they embody and they sound like Jesus. They shepherd their people. They love them. Uh, they don't domineer. They don't use people to push them around or do their bidding. They are genuinely loving the flock because they know that the flock belongs to God. And Jesus has obtained his blood with the flock with his own blood, right? So these are all the things, these are all the strategy points that we've been talking about for months. I mean, do you recognize the difference of what Peter is describing than anything we're going to see on any news channel 
It is so much better than what anything this world has to offer. Now, Peter is going to finish up with this idea of strategy this morning. And really, he's going to continue that same theme in our passage. Um, and it, the, these three points I'm about to share with you in our passage to sort of summarize the book. Uh, they may seem kind of like all over the place, and in a sense, they kind of are because, you know, Peter's wrapping up his letter, and he's like, oh, by the way, do this, and oh, by the way, do that, and oh, by the way, remember this. Uh, but what I would encourage you to do is when you listen to these three things, which one do you think you most need to hold on to, and what, which one speaks to you and what you most need to hear, right? So these are going to sound a little like wonky, but just go with me because this is where Peter goes, right? All right, so uh, that idea about strategy, right? Knowing the living God, uh, the God of all grace. What is the strategy that Peter wants us to embrace in his closing thoughts? Uh, number one, he wants us to embrace the Christian community. Um, you know, you could call it the church, although Peter never actually says the word church, but it's clear he's talking about the community of believers. Uh, so we embrace the Christian community. The second strategy is we need to surrender our anxieties. Right? We've got to cast our anxieties onto the Lord. And then the last strategy is we have to resist Satan. Right? So, again, those don't really you know, make a whole lot of sense, but that's sort of where Peter goes. And all those ideas should be somewhat familiar with you. So what does it mean to embrace? That's the key word I want you to think about. Embrace the Christian community. Well, uh, look with me at verses uh, 5 and following. Peter is giving a strategy, right? How do we live this life? How do we sound and operate like Jesus? Peter says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He's quoting Proverbs right there. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Uh, friends, the way that we embrace Christian community, and I mean like embrace in the terms of affectionate love, right? The way that we love other believers is by demonstrating and clothing ourselves with genuine, sincere humility. Uh, notice right there that, uh, you know, in chapter 5, Peter has just gotten done sort of telling the elders what to do, right? You know, don't domineer, shepherd your people. Well, now he turns his attention to sort of the congregations, right? The, the people that make up the, these individual churches. And he says, likewise, you who are younger, submit to the elders and humble yourselves. And then Peter looks at the whole congregation, both the younger ones and the elders, and he says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. And, and I love that image of clothe right there because that Greek word uh, conjures up the, the, the image of a servant, who would clothe themselves with an apron right here. Anyone ever have a job where you, where you wore a uniform? Anyone served in the military before? Uh, anyone ever had a, had a, uni a genuine uniform? Well, you know, you know, it's clothing. What does it mean to clothe yourselves? Well, clothing um, signifies your job, right? Your role, the thing that you do, right? And what, and what Peter's using there is that image of, well, we clothe ourselves. We take on this role. We dress ourselves in a uniform, if you will, and the uniform is humility, right? It's being humble, not just so that we get what we want out of people and manipulate them, but we humble ourselves, and we believe that God has a plan for that person, and we don't want to get in the way of God's plan, and that we are, are quick to serve other people. I mean, this idea of clothing yourselves in humility, does that remind you of anything Jesus did in his life? 
Can you think of a story where Jesus showed deep humility and he clothed himself in the robes of a servant? Well, in John 13, on the night when his apostles, including Peter, are going to abandon him, Jesus stoops, he wraps a towel around his waist, and he washes their stinky feet. I mean, it's something even servants wouldn't have to do. It was so degrading. And Peter, our author, you know, what, how does he respond? He says, Jesus, don't wash my feet. You can't do that. And Jesus says, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. You know, hear the humility of Jesus. He has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as our ransom. That's what Mark 10, 45 says. Right? And you know, don't you love Peter? Because you remember what Peter says next? He says, well, then wash my whole body. And Jesus is like, you're fine, Peter. <laughs> you're missing the point of the imagery, right? What's the point of what Jesus is doing? Jesus is showing us that humility is part of his character. And that if we are going to follow him in this life, we have to clothe ourselves with humility. You hear that? And it's for everybody. Now, in verse 5, he focuses on the younger. Did you notice that? Verse 5, he says, likewise, you who are younger. And I don't really know uh, which uh, term or which uh, definition of Peter, of, uh, that Peter means by that, because younger could technically mean the young men, which I don't know why young men would need to worry about being humble. I think we're already that. Just kidding, right? That's a joke. Uh, it could mean the younger men, or uh, it could mean, prob- and probably in relation to how it's being compared to the elders, it probably just refers to anyone who's younger in the faith. Does that make sense? It's probably just anybody who's younger than the faith, although it could be specifically sort of hard-headed young men. Uh, either way, the, the point stands that the Christian community is to be marked by everyone demonstrating humility. You know, and when I, when I think about that, you know, that it kind of brings up that generational tension you know, that, that we all feel right uh, between generations and how do we interact. And the Bible has the audacity to say that younger people should show honor to older people, right? that we should regard them with a level of honor. And uh, the, the funny thing about that is, you know, um, it's like that old saying, you know, um, when you're 15, no one's stupider than whom? Who, who's like the most stupid people you know when you're 15? Your parents. <laughs> it's funny all the parents know the answer to that real fast, you know? Yeah, when you're 15, no one's dumber than your parents. But when you're 25, no one's really starting to come around and make sense like your parents. Oh, who knew? They're kind of cool. And then when you're 35, no one's wiser and a better model for how you should raise your family than your parents. And of course, when you're 65, you miss nobody like you miss your parents. And, you know, as the saying goes, no one really grows up until their parents are gone. You see, there's this sense that uh, we, are, uh, we are raised in a society. You know, the way that God has developed this world is that even though we struggle to respect our elders, it's something that is so good for us. Uh, not, that, not that every older person is wiser than every young person, right? I'm not trying to, to over-apply that, but there is this sense that part of humility is recognizing who is wiser than you, recognizing that there are other people of information that you don't in wisdom, right? And, and Paul, or excuse me, Peter wants the churches to have that sense of humility towards one another. You know, uh, years ago, I worked for the army before I was a pastor. When I worked for the army, I read Proverbs every day, uh, in my office because I, I just wanted to read the Bible and I was trying to figure out how to have, you know, like a normal job. And um, I started reading Proverbs one chapter a day and I read it for like months. And by the end of it, I couldn't tell you like one thing 
that the book of Proverbs was trying to tell me. Has anyone ever tried to read Proverbs? You know, there's like, there's like 50 little pithy sayings every chapter. And after like 20, you're just like, time out. Okay, like, I am like pithy saying overloaded right now. I don't, I don't remember any of them. You know, I was like trying to juggle, and then they all just crashed, right? But after a few months, what I recognized, and what I think the Lord revealed to me, and not just me, but a lot of people notice this too, is that there are actually themes that keep reappearing in the book of Proverbs. There's like certain topics that it keeps bringing up. And one of those is what is the truly wise person? What does the truly wise person do? How do I become wise? You know, um, I've never met somebody who doesn't want to be wise. You know, even the most wicked person wants to be street savvy or smart or think they have their finger on what's going on in real life. Everybody wants to be wise. So what is wisdom? Well, I thought wisdom was some sort of like hidden information that I had to sort of like figure out the code to crack into the safe and find this hidden information. But what I found reading the book of Proverbs is wisdom is actually having the disposition of being teachable. Now, there's more, there's more to wisdom than just being teachable. But over and over again, in probably two dozen Proverbs, this idea that the truly wise person doesn't just have more information than everybody, doesn't just have all this secret knowledge. The wise person actually knows who to listen to, how to receive instruction. I mean, here, I'll just read a couple of Proverbs. A fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever takes correction is prudent. Whoever ignores instruction hates himself, but he who listens to correction gains intelligence. Poverty and disgrace comes to those who ignore instruction, but whoever listens to correction is honored. Right? What Peter, what Proverbs is getting at, right, is part of the way that we operate as God's people is we receive instruction from those who are more spiritually mature than us. We clothe ourselves, all of us, with humility because we all have things to learn from one another. And listening to someone and their wise counsel, the things that they have learned, is a way of honoring them. Right? This is part of the strategy that the church provides. It is a humble, non-competitive community. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Now, of course, you know, the real rub of wisdom is listening to people and knowing who is going to point you to Jesus, right? That's who you should listen to. That's like the rub of Proverbs, right? It's not just you are just a sponge and you take up whatever anybody ever says. The wise person knows who to listen to. They know who's pointing them to Jesus, which is why it's so paramount that elders shepherd the way Jesus shepherds us, right? That's how the Christian community work. Leaders point us to Jesus and people follow their leadership. Not because it's their leadership, but because they point us to Jesus, right? And everyone has humility. That's the first way we embrace Christian community. We, we exhibit and we show humility towards one another. The second way, all right, if that one didn't make you a little uncomfortable, this one for sure is, okay? So just get ready. Because the second way I think that Peter is going to demonstrate that we embrace Christian community is right there in verse 12 and 13. And it's by showing affection. We're going to talk about our feelings for a moment, okay? <laughs> so 
prepare yourselves, right? Look at verse 12 and how he finishes the letter. Peter says, he's writing by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And then notice what Peter says next. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my what? My son. Greet one another with what? The kiss of love. (laughs) Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now, the reason I, I, I bring this up is because I want you to see that Peter is not just commanding something in these verses. He's actually modeling it for us. And what he's doing is he's modeling for us, and in some ways commanding us, to show affection to other believers. Notice how he talks about Sylvanus. Look right there at verse 12. Peter says, hey, uh, I'm sending this letter through uh, Sylvanus. So, you know, thanks, bro. Is that what he says? No, notice what he says. He says, Sylvanus, a what? A faithful brother as I regard him. (laughs) You know what he's doing right there? Peter is publicly praising Sylvanus. When Sylvanus, you know, delivers this letter and they read it out loud and Sylvanus hears that Peter thinks of him as a faithful brother and I have high regard for this guy. You know what Peter's doing? He's publicly praising Sylvanus. He didn't say, thank you, Sylvanus, for your service. What he says is, I'm going to publicly praise you. I want everybody to know that I think highly of you. And that's not the only person that he uses his words to affirm. What does he call Mark? Mark, his what? His son. Now, is Mark literally Peter's son? Well, if church history is to be believed, no, that's not his son, not his biological son. But what he's doing is he's, he's using Mark, who uh, you're, you can read about. His name's John Mark. You can read about in the book of Acts. He's using Mark as sort of uh, a person that he's publicly endorsing. And if you know anything about Mark's life, you may remember in the book of Acts that Mark joins Paul on a mission trip, but then Mark abandons the mission trip and disqualifies himself. And, and Paul won't invite him on the next mission trip. Well, years have now gone by, apparently, and what Peter's saying is he's saying, remember Mark when he embarrassed himself and he just made a big old mess and everybody knew about it? Don't worry about that anymore, guys. He's my son. Does that remind you at all about how Jesus treated Peter? Hey, Peter, we know you screwed up. We know you messed up, but guess what? You're still on the team. Mark, we know you messed up, but guess what? You're still on the team. And I don't just say that. I think of you as my true son. I mean, think about what that would have meant to Mark to hear Peter the rock of the church, say that about him. Right? He's using his words. He's demonstrating to us affection by giving public praise. And then, of course, he mentions in verse 13, he says he wants anybody hearing this to know that there is a Christian community that is thinking about them and sending greetings. We want you to know we're thinking about you and praying for you. That's what verse 13 is all about. The she right there is not a woman. What that is referring to is the church, the the community, right? Uh, The church that Peter is a part of, and um, you know, most commentators think that Babylon right there is a reference to the city of Rome, right? And that sort of makes sense that he wouldn't say Rome. He's thinking of it as Babylon, right? It's a metaphor because if you know the Old Testament, you'll know that God's people in the Old Testament were exiles where? In Babylon, and they were sojourners in Babylon. And right, that's the whole theme of 1 Peter. Now, Peter is saying, hey, guess what? God's people, we are once again sojourners in Babylon. 
But his point in mentioning all that is he's trying to encourage other churches to say, we're thinking about you and we know what you're enduring. Right? I mean, this is part of why our church prays for another church in the valley every Sunday by name is because we want to embody that verse that we don't see ourselves in competition with other local churches. We see ourselves in it with them. And when they thrive, the church thrives and Jesus gets the glory. That's very much what Peter is trying to encourage these churches to think about. The church is meant to be a non-competitive community where we're all rooting for each other to follow Jesus more sincerely. He's publicly praising people. He's letting people know. He's, he's communicating on their behalf. And then lastly, you know, the last part about the affection is verse 14, right? What does he say? Greet one another with the kiss of love, right? What in the world does that refer to? Well, uh, the kiss of love is mentioned in a lot of letters in the New Testament. Romans, I think 1 Corinthians, I think 1 Thessalonians mentions the holy kiss. So what is he talking about? Well, culturally at this time, uh, people, when they would greet each other, you know, would do like the cheek-to-cheek kiss. Has anyone ever been to a country or a culture where that's like the expectation when you meet somebody new? They want to kiss you on the cheek. Has no one been in a culture like that? All right, who loves that kind of culture? Does anybody, would anybody love to do that? <laughs> We're all, you know, I don't know, you know where your, your background is, but uh, at least for my background, that is not how I greet people I don't know. Uh, years ago, I went to Costa Rica uh, a few years in a row on a mission trip when I was a youth pastor, and we stayed with this Costa Rican lady. I think my wife is still friends with her on Facebook. She was lovely. She was a grandma. Her name was Maria, and she had this beautiful little home in San Jose, Costa Rica, uh, and we stayed with her for about two weeks every summer. The awkward part was in Costa Rica, guess what you have to do first thing in the morning before you are even allowed to brush your teeth? <laughs> was the first thing everybody in the house, no matter who they are, has to do? Anybody know? You go up to the matriarch of the house and you go, and I tell you what, guys, I, that was so painful. It was so hard for me to wake up and I'd be like, I'd like try to sneak to the bathroom to like brush my teeth before I had to go kiss this like random woman. I love Maria. It was great. Um, it pushed me outside of my comfort zone, you know. But is that what Peter wants? Does Peter want all of us to just be squirming every Sunday? You know, I mean, goodness, the, the turn and greet your neighbor is painful enough. Imagine if you had to kiss the person next to you, right? Is that what Peter wants us to do? Well, um, I don't think so. And the reason I would say that is because that was a culturally appropriate way that was non-sexual, that had no connotation. It was just their way of showing affection, right? We have different ways of showing that kind of affection. Uh, but I guess what I would, would push on, and I think what you need to think about, is there is this sort of nudging Christians to think about showing affection, and the Bible mentions the holy kiss a lot of times. And, you know, I remember life before Caroline when I was a single seminary student. I think I went about a year without anybody giving me any kind of hug or affection. And there are people in our congregation who are in that same category. They may be single. They may be divorced. They may be lonely. And, you know, there are people who need genuine affection. I mean, this is one of the hardest things that COVID has taken away from us, is there is a fundamental human need to have affection given to people. We need pats on the back. And what Peter is telling the church is the community of the cross 
is meant to be the kind of community that genuinely shows affection to people. Not to manipulate them, not to mistreat them or abuse them, but to encourage them. We all need those things. So friends, embracing the Christian community is not just humility, it's going out of our way to show affection. So I don't know who in your life needs affection or who is like, you know, safe for you or whatever to show affection to, but it is also Valentine's, guys. So this would be an opportune time to hug that lovely wife next to you if she's sitting next to you or to hug your mom, right? There's that sense of affection. People need affection, right? All right, I'm belaboring the point, right? But I think you get the point, right? You know, the next strategy right there is he tells us to cast our anxieties. This is verse 7. The second uh, strategy is to cast our anxieties onto the Lord because he cares for you. You know, the only thing I'll say about this is, goodness gracious, I feel like there's some Christians right now that I love that are my brothers and sisters, and I feel like they have now started to believe that worrying is a spiritual gift, Right? They can't wait to tell me all the 10 reasons why the sky is falling and we're all going to be dead and we're already dead. We just don't know it yet, right? There are so many reasons to worry, right? And, and Peter had plenty of reasons to worry, right? But worrying is not a spiritual gift. If anything, it's something to, to rid ourselves of. Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. He says, today has enough problems. <laughs> worry about today. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Well, Peter picks up on that same theme and he says, there are plenty of reasons to be anxious. There's plenty of reasons to be worried. I could list them all, but you're already thinking about them, so I'm not going to list them because they're obvious. But what are you going to do with that? Well, the answer for the Christian is that we cast them on the Lord because we know that he cares for us. You know, and we, we do that, that morning Bible reading. Um, you know, hopefully you already have a devotional, but if you don't, you can join us in the co-op and part of what I tried to do in the co-op was to create a, a standard time for you to do this very thing. Um, I ask everybody who does it, you know, if you're doing the little journaling part, every morning just take a few moments and write down what are your hopes, your fears, your concerns, and your longings for the day. Okay, what do you, what's worrying you? List them out before the Lord. What are you concerned about? List them out. And then the key is surrender them. Not my will, but your will. I'm going to cast all of these cares onto you because I know that you love me and you care for me. If you struggle with worry, you know, email me. i got some book recommendations. Uh, but Peter's strategy for this life is not to think of worrying as a spiritual gift, but to learn to cast our anxieties onto him. And I don't know how you do that other than you just have to do it every day. I guess that's my point in the co-op is I don't, I don't think it's like a cure-all. You do it once and you never worry again. You know, um, I think your worry and anxiety is probably linked you know, to just how much, you know, media we consume every day, right? And so how do, you, how do you get rid of your anxieties? Well, you know, I don't know. I don't think there's a way to do it unless you do it daily, unless you take up your cross daily and you follow him and say, Jesus, these are my worries for today. Because <laughs> if I think about my worries for tomorrow and the future, I'm going to be overwhelmed. But, you know, you've got maybe 10 hours and 20 minutes for the rest of the day until hopefully you're asleep, you know? What do you need to focus on today? Take today for itself. Don't worry about tomorrow right now. Just take it day by day. You know, the third and final strategy, of course, is to be aware that there is an evil force, Satan, at work, and we are to resist him. But I've sort of already gone beyond my time. But 
I guess what I want you to see from 1 Peter is all of these things, you know, resisting evil forces, being firm in our belief, um, casting our anxieties, genuinely embracing one another. All of these things only truly happen when you and I have a personal encounter with the God of all grace. I mean, what's going to truly humble you other than meeting Jesus Christ? And what can actually cause us to cast our worries? I mean, there are so many things to worry about. I mean, does anybody here think there's not legitimate things to worry about? I mean, what is your hope if it's not in Christ Jesus and in his return? Seriously. I mean, there's so many things we could worry about right now in life. What other hope do we have? I mean, is it possible to live an anxiety-free life? Yeah, it is. If you cast your anxieties onto Jesus every day and you follow him. I mean, the life, the strategy that Peter is describing, it only happens when you personally know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And, you know, that's where sort of Peter ends right there in verse 11, right? Is when you have that personal encounter, you know the voice of the living God. You know, what that leaves us with is just an overarching desire to worship him, for him to have rule over everything, to him be the dominion forever and ever. You know, that's the heart cry of a person who's met Jesus. Jesus, I want you to have full reign over everything in my life because I know that you are the God of all grace. Uh, Friends, that's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and everything we have learned from 1 Peter. Uh, Father, we pray that we would see this as a strategy for living today. Uh, Father, we pray that our church would continue to see baptisms and people coming to faith in you. Uh, Lord, we pray that we would hear the voice of Jesus and we would speak and talk and operate like him. Uh, Father, we pray that we would resist Satan and his lies, that we would stand firm against this world and stand firm on the foundation of your word. Uh, Lord, we need you to do these things. Reveal yourself to us now as we prepare to take communion. Amen.